Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist at the American Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I am your host, Andrew Sola. Let's start this episode with a poem, with thanks to Shakespeare. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, migrants on a sinking boat, solutions now seem remote. Salvini, Orban, Madame Le Pen, goodbye Europe, said Big Ben. Corruption, fraud and fake news, recession, debt and food bank queues. Europe on a right-wing trend. For Angie Merkel, is this the end? Like a hellbroth boil and bubble. For the European Union, I smell trouble. Once again, the toxic brew of populism and xenophobia, Euroscepticism and resurgent nationalism has reached a boiling point. And the most important ingredient in this bubbling political cauldron is immigration. Last week... The new Italian interior minister, Matteo Salvini, refused to allow the Aquarius, a rescue boat full of 629 immigrants, to dock in Italian ports. The boat was stranded at sea until the Spanish government intervened and allowed the migrants to land in Valencia. Salvini's actions have prompted now an EU-wide crisis with both humanitarian and political ramifications. So how will the EU deal with the immigration crisis? Will the EU create a fortress Europe? Or will EU countries share the burden of migrants and refugees? Are there perhaps other solutions? And what are the political consequences for Europe? Will Chancellor Merkel's coalition government survive? Are we witnessing the end of her political career? Will Italy drive further segmentation and division in the EU? Here to answer these questions is our esteemed expert in European politics and international economics at the EU capital in Brussels, Dr. Gunter Donner. Welcome once again, Dr. Donner. Hello. So today we'll discuss the complexities of the migration crisis, but also on our agenda today are two fairly serious European economic issues that have mostly flown under the radar because of the migration crisis. First, the U.S. Treasury accused Latvia's third-largest bank of money laundering, while at the same time the head of the Latvian Central Bank was accused of both bribery and corruption. Secondly, the EU reached an agreement with Greece to end its bailout. But first, we need to discuss the European migration crisis, which really started in Italy. So let's recap the political situation there. Italy had elections in March, but there was no clear winner. Therefore, the leading party, the populist Five Star Movement, was forced to find a coalition partner. And they found a willing, albeit aggressive, partner in Matteo Salvini, the leader of the right-wing nationalist Lega Nord, the Northern League. Salvini was given the position of interior minister, and practically his first decision was to close Italian ports to ships with migrants. And suddenly the rest of Europe had to react. One of the first political victims was Chancellor Merkel. 
Dr. Donner, can you help us understand how Salvini's actions have affected Chancellor Merkel, German politics, and European politics as a whole? Well, as a matter of fact, the um, Salvini is just trying to put into practice ideas, conceptions, and and demands. Everyone familiar with his uh, with his electoral campaign would have uh, anticipated. What is so um, difficult to understand for outsiders is that Salvini arrived at where he is now in a coalition of the extreme right based on his own party, no longer the, the Liga North. He renamed himself in order to apply to public protest demands in southern Italy where the um, migration crisis produced or shows most clearly because it, that is where the refugees from, from Africa tend to come ashore. Then his two partners, quite unknown, well, the one is Berlusconi's Forza Italia. He uh, managed to, to hold himself at bay from the present government, although he had previously agreed to Salvini entering this government, this new coalition with the uh, Five Star Movement. The third party in all this is rarely discussed. It's the openly fascist Fratelli d'Italia, which is today's name given to what was had been known for decades as the Movimento Sociale. That was the post-Mussolini revival party. So amidst all this, there is plenty of right-wing ideology around. On the other hand, uh, you find, likewise, you find ideological concepts and solutions, in inverted commas, uh, also among the uh, Five Star Movement. The Five Star Movement is very un, it's very difficult to place. Uh, its ideology is based on anti-establishment convictions, hatred. Uh, bordering on on vulgarisms. And no love for the EU. And of course, they are bitterly opposed to the EU, which is probably even more so than to Salvini, Merkel and Germany, with all their economic success and strength, represent the what is the EU. The EU is a disguise for German domination, which, of course, is quite far from being the truth. So that's why these two camps now agree. Pro- probably five years ago, they would have uh, they would have been at each other's throats. Uh, that has changed. The Five Star Movement, being populist, has realised that being populist now can only be on the right wing. There is no left wing, no, no credible left wing populism anymore. There's a bit of international protest, whatever, G20-like things. But even there, the the mainstream majorities tend to move towards the right, That for, for various reasons. The um, migration issue now uh, will, of course, has affected Italy, not because so many migrants have actually climbed asylum there. To be frank, most of those stepping on the Italian shores plan to travel further to other countries. In fact, Italy has holds a certain record in terms of numbers of refugees, especially the boat people type. You have to keep apart the boat people type 
coming from Northern Africa, mostly black Africans, and you have to keep them apart from the former Balkan route, where mostly people of Arabic or Afghan or Pakistani origin come uh, all the way up to Europe, fleeing from war zones and the like. So Italy was mostly hit hard by an enormous influx of boat people coming from Northern Africa. The country receives money for refugees from the European Union. There's quite little you see in terms of integration. The Italian welfare state is not very generous. The Italian practice of privatizing much of the integration efforts has led to corruption and mismanagement. What type of corruption are we talking about? Well, we talk about a a rundown hotel uh, abandoned for years, now transformed into a camp for training, of integrational training to refugees, and all this is run by people who know where and how to pull the strings. So the EU pays money to house and integrate Uh, migrants, but the money is redirected into the pockets of... Well, the parts, of, at least parts of this, uh, business people, indeed, at least parts of this, and this can be clearly proven, and that has been has been reported on in the press. The problem for Italy, of course, is that municipal infrastructure is rather weak, and the municipalities cannot cope with the influx of refugees. There is still, it has improved, but there is still. A considerable deficit in administrative precision in handling with the individual cases, are keeping track of them. In fact, many just disappear, and you can see this. They wish to 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 leave Italy to either go to France. You you, you now have an on, a quite well sealed border between France and Italy, with the daily inspections of trains and roads and whatever, in order to to stop. Uh, immigrants leaving Italy and moving into France, where the social security system is considerably higher and more generous. Italy is far from being productive. Italy is heavily over-indebted. And uh, there is a general understanding that life is not fair for probably the majority of Italians. If you're not well-connected family-wise, you have your problems. This um, public uh, disappointment is now channeled and fueled into these um, anti-migration thing. Indeed, Salvini's slogan is now Italy for Italians, mm-hmm. which is quite similar to Trump's Make America Great Again slogan, and it calls to mind any number of right-wing movements in Europe. Indeed, nearly every right-wing populist is saying the same thing. Orban says Hungary for Hungarians, mm-hmm. Le Pen says France for the French, Should we just accept the fact that the vast majority of Europeans believe that Europe should be for Europeans? Well, uh, this question is is quite manifold. Let us start with the theoretical. Each and every welfare system has a limit beyond which it won't function anymore. We have to bear in mind that the level of of systems of social aid or of welfare state systems within the EU is extremely heterogeneous. So uh, there are countries with an extremely generous portfolio like Denmark, Sweden, Germany or Luxembourg or the Netherlands and others where you get next to nothing. That is Poland and Hungary, Romania and Bulgaria and and even Italy is very poor. So 
It's very easy to understand that where there is already poverty galore amidst the genuine population on spot, any massive influx of recipients of social aid will cause the collapse of the system, the complete collapse and the downfall of the social system. That is one thing. The other is right-wing governments tend to be monothematic in character. So it's one subject they deal with, which normally is we and we and they. And the we and they thing works perfectly well and makes you forget that probably the we is far less clearly defined in Italy than it is defined in Denmark. Indeed, we saw this with Salvini in the 90s, constructing a we and they, we, the northern Italians, against them, the southern Italians. And he realized that wasn't productive politically anymore, so he apologized to the southern Italians for excluding them from Italy 15 years ago, and he now has chosen another group to exclude, which was politically wise, whether or not it shows any integrity in the man is yet to be seen. Well, uh, it's it's clear he, he's a he's a shrewd politician, a demagogue, and he knows his he knows the game he's playing quite well, and he knows that far beyond the uh, the the group of his prime supporters, he will find positive feedback when criticizing the European Union, Germany, Mrs. Merkel in particular, and accusing them of instrumentalizing Italy for their purposes or exploiting Italians or depriving Italians of their just position within Europe as a founding member state. Even the the so-called intellectual left in Italy, fiercely against Europe, because Europe is pro-market and market is uh, the, devil th- the devil's realm. I know left-wing Italian so-called intellectuals who do not like Salvini, but who approve of his poli- of his politics now, which is rather contradictory. It's 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 pragmatism at at a quite a low level, and uh, I think he, the opposition has very little to 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 offer in order to 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 counterweigh his his things because they haven't done anything, and uh, just they wished to please Brussels. And uh, uh, they they were accused of being Brussels puppets. And now he's there and he has to show that he's not a puppet of neither Brussels nor Frau Merkel. And that's what he's about to do. Indeed. And I think he probably knew that when he denied entry of the Aquarius boat to Italian ports, he knew that eventually the fallout of that decision would touch Merkel's coalition because she is in a coalition with CSU, the sister party of Germany's party, it's the Bavarian wing of the party, and there has been some trouble with that coalition in the last week, mostly instigated by Salvini's decision to prevent the refugee boat from landing. So can you talk a little bit about the relationship between uh, Merkel and Horst Seehofer? I think it has less to do with the Italian uh, readiness to deprive a rescue ship from entering an Italian harbor. It's brought it. This made it international news, though it forced it forced them to uh, uh, engage. The German trouble is rather homemade. It's a labor force type of trouble. (laughs) Uh, 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 The the thing is, there are 
elections in the state of Bavaria, state elections looming on the horizon for mid-October. Uh, the CSU there, it's as a staunchly Catholic, bourgeois, conservative, pro-American, pro-NATO, and also pro-European party, has been shattered by the uh, in- enormous success uh, the the new German right, the AFD, is about to see. According to polls now, the CSU, once under Hastraus, around the 60% of the vote, so uh, an incredible Orban-style majority, is now down to 40, let's say 41%. The SPD, on the other hand, in Bavaria is down to 12, which really raises the question, is this still a party with a mass following, or is it a splinter party, as we call it in German? So the uh, the, the CSU is absolutely motivated by, by their panic to lose what they've enjoyed in Bavaria for decades on end. Uh, their rule there is un- has been there for, for ever since the post-war Germany existed, with few exceptions, early 50s. They were the rulers of Bavaria. And uh, they wish to continue as such. And according to the polls, they will have to look for a coalition partner. The Liberals will be probably not represented. They will. Uh, they won't master the threshold. It's difficult for them to to figure out who to who to to form a coalition with. And the coalition, as such, for them is uh, is a horror because they wish to rule by themselves. So that is where again, the, we're still talking about within the state of yes, Bavaria. Yeah, they have their so own. Take, mm. So take this into the the national scene. These are traditional allies of of Merkel's government going back for decades. For decades, yeah. And now the chairman of the Bavarian Party put a lot of pressure on Merkel to address the migrant policies that Germany has, and and we've seen Merkel wavering. Her complete authority Absolutely. is wavering. Definitely. So can you can you talk a little bit more about yes. that, please? Yes, Merkel's authority is it's more than wavering. Uh, Seehofer, as a Bavarian, threatens unilateral action. That means Bavarian border controls. Constitutionally, this wouldn't last from Merkel, as the Chancellor has the right to fire him within an hour. This is just a shallow threat. But this would probably put an end to their common role they play within the uh, the federal parliament um though uh, this all this is more noise than than action uh, uh the problem is zehofer needs to present his party as the strong party doing something and doing something different to what's been told to the german public ever since the uh the influx of 2015. So, from at the onset, I had the phrases of, we need to wait for a European solution. She didn't define it then, as she didn't define it in October 2015. Uh, There was indeed a European attempt of a solution in October 2015, uh, when 150,000 out of millions of refugees should be quota to to individual member states. This never materialized beyond uh, the level of a few thousand people uh, for a very simple reason. Some states refused it. Others 
question the whole the whole gist of the affair because we have totally different systems of social aid and the the refugee being sent on a quota ticket to Romania instead of to Copenhagen will bitterly regret it the the difference is 70 750 euros pocket money in Copenhagen that has already been reduced from 1500 uh, and Romania he will probably get 20 Okay, um, so so that was the solution planned in in two thousand fifteen, yes. which which never came about. And I do want to discuss solutions now. Next week, I believe the ten presidents or leaders of European countries are meeting in Brussels to try to come up with a European solution to the migration problem. Mm-hmm. So, what are the different solutions, and are any of them actually feasible, either practically and also politically? Because they, we can solve a problem, but if politically no one's willing to sign up for it, then it's also not a solution. Well, we have to bear in mind that already a few European standards seemed, seem to have been given up by from Merkel as well. Uh, the European state of affairs is the Dublin Convention, where the refugee has to stay within the first EU member state where he or she sets foot. This is European legislation. It's long since been abandoned for several reasons, because we all know that it's it's a very unbalanced uh, distribution of, of refugees. Right, one thing. The second is the quota thing is out of discussion, no longer really discussed. It's probably dead. The third now is what Mrs. Merkel calls the European solution is more or less based on bilateral agreements. Of course, Germany and Austria can arrive at a whatever temporary solution for their common border. So what would Germany do with refugees leaving Austria and wishing to enter Germany? Will they send them back? Will they have to sit in no man's land? Or will the Austrians take them back? Or will the Austrians stop them from ever reaching the, the the border area? This is all part of, I would call this a, a bilateral agreement. Uh, what is with a refugee who still has uh, a documentation that he entered the EU in Italy and now he turns up in Copenhagen? Who will take him or her back? This is uncertain. The Austrian Chancellor and the Danish Prime Minister have added very strong uh, strong criticisms of this of the present state of affairs and wish to stop refugees on North African soil. Uh, the Dane has all, all, also come up with the idea of making a depot or whatever, a stopover place in Albania. Indeed, and it was just reported that no country was willing to host this. So how that's could again this, a, a... How could, how could this have been expected? Yeah. The idea of producing now a European solution, be this uh, safe havens on North African soil or elsewhere within a week, and that has not been possible to to conceive within the last three years, uh, is far from being realistic. It's more or less uh, its talk. And so what might be agreed upon is a, a declaration, but as we all know, there will be no pre-formulated, pre-summit joint declaration because the Italian Prime Minister Conte preferred not to. I think the basic issue is we are already past a European solution. I do not believe 
in a tangible European solution, I believe indeed in a few approaches of European members, European member states, EU member states, uh, with bilateral or multilateral agreements or what to do with refugees. But one thing is important. So internally, you're talking about internally bilateral agreements. So you can between you, Italy and Austria, between of course you can, Italy but you and could France, you could sign, you but could, nothing. The, the EU has lost all of its. The EU has lost all to, of its momentum to, to solve this because Brussels is more or less hosting a discussion. Brussels has very little to offer. Rumors have it that Hayunka now favors such uh, uh, safe havens on African soil, but that still is light years away from reality. They need to essentially bribe a Af- North African state with enough money for them to accept. Yes, and they would right. have to see to it that the the fate of the poor refugees there will be under EU humanitarian control. Uh, because the reality of what people expect in Libya at the mercy of the the Libyan anarchy, warlords, uh, is probably nothing the EU could ever associate with without losing its reputation. But but this will take months, mm-hmm. if not years, uh, to, to perfect. Maybe you can do it. It's probably a question of money. It's a question of know-how you put into it. But one thing is clear, and I think this should be understood. Solving the the African socio-economic catastrophe by just encouraging or allowing people to, to move over to Denmark, Sweden, Germany, wherever, is no, is, is no solution. It can't work. The problem to me is uh, what can the EU produce as to be part of the solution and not part of the problem? And uh, I'm, I'm not too sure that for the time being uh, everybody has laid his or her deck of cards on the table. This certainly is true about Hamacron. Uh, Hamacron has tightly sealed the border to Italy for one purpose alone, to keep refugees at bay and away from France. Right, and and I think I haven't seen this in the news. Is no one really discussing so-called Fortress Europe again? Just a sealing of the external borders, which of course is very difficult because the borders are huge. It's just like sealing the border between Mexico and the U.S. Let me it's a very long yeah. border. No, it's, it's much more difficult. In. It's much more difficult. The, the, you, the border you have with Mexico is quite easy to seal. Sealing the, the Greek external border with all the thousands of small islands in the Aegean Sea is impossible. And given the state of affairs of Greece as a whole, and the liability of its, well, the quality of public services, the EU, the non-Schengen borders, EU external borders, have never been tightly closed, let's face it. And Greece was at the centre of this problem already 10 years ago. Then there was no massive stream of refugees trying to enter. But the... Uh, the Schengen promise of a uh, rather tight control of the exterior borders of the of the of the Schengen area has never worked properly. Schengen seems to be on the seems to be on the at least on a stretcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, even from Merkel talks about um, sending back refugees at the German border 
who have had already applied for asylum in Germany before. But just in order to do so, you would have to double check their documents at the border. That means border control re-established, contrary to Schengen. Schengen, so within the Schengen area, there is no border control. And I don't believe that this will be, can be upheld much longer. We will see border controls like the Danes do it, the Swedes do it. You see, this is the difficulty. We have now these individual actions at rather different levels. The Belgians don't control, the French do, the, the Dutch film everyone entering the country and by, and leaving the country. The Germans do a bit of this and a bit of that and so on and so forth. This already marks that the idea of the Great Schengen area is is almost uh, is almost a matter of the past. So I'd just like to sum up a little bit here. What I have not heard is any actual solution that is workable either in theory or in practice, politically or in reality, to the immigration crisis, which means this is all political talk coming from various capitals yes. and from the EU. Now, I believe uh, Merkel asked for two weeks to be able to solve the immigration problem at this summit coming up in Brussels. Our 95% likelihood pr prediction is that there will be no solution. There will be some words. Mm -hmm. So Merkel will come back most likely without a deal that satisfies certainly the Bavarians. Mm -hmm. So then what? That's a, that's an open question. I think the Bavarians will go a step, one step further and rephrase the motivation for tight border controls uh, on the German exterior, on the German exterior state line to, to, to Austria and, and the, the Czech Republic. And I think this will not be named a unilateral action because if only done by the um, Hasehofer as the Minister of the Interior, Frau Merkel would have been provoked to stop him. And this would might lead to a major crisis of the uh, acting Grand Coalition. And I think n nobody nobody involved, neither Frau Merkel nor Hasehofer and the Bavarians, nobody within the coalition is ready to stand a new election in autumn. They are they are as scared as can be. So I don't think they will in the end destroy what they have now and jump on the bandwagon of a new election after such a poor performance during the first 100 days. I can't, I can't, I don't see this. And uh, as long as the economy is doing well and the German economy is, in spite of all the difficulties we have with the US and and others, is still doing quite well. Uh, I can't. I can't see that they sh would really risk uh, a, a new public election, and the result wouldn't be much different. It would be worse for the big parties, and it would be a, a, a clear gain, at least in in, in votes and, and seats for the extreme right. Okay, let's move on to Latvia. Mm. Last week, two bombshells hit Riga. First, the U.S. Treasury accused Latvia's third-largest bank of money laundering and evasion of sanctions. Specifically, the U.S. alleges that the bank was processing money for North Koreans. The second bombshell was that the offices of the head of the Latvian Central Bank were raided 
in a bribery and corruption investigation. Dr. Donner, can you help us understand what's going on in Latvia and why it's important for Europe and the U.S.? Well, I think it's quite shocking news. It's very rarely talked about in the German press or uh, even in, in Brussels because it's such a murky situation. Nobody seems to be clear what what's going on. The fact is the um, Latvia being a very small economy, rather, rather weak economy, still has quite a big banking sector. And um, the problem now is brought to public to, to public attention by the fact that there was an ECB summit. The ECB is the, the European, European Central Bank. Indeed, yeah. Uh, an ECB summit in Riga. And uh, so all the Draghis and the national heads of the national banks were assembling there with the exception of the Latvian guy who was who's no longer in prison, but he's not allowed to enter his own office building. <laughs> and his deputy was present, but she has no right to vote. That is the ECB rule. Uh, so uh, this was rather embarrassing for the uh, uh, for the guys assembled, I believe. What exactly happened uh, is still a, qu- a quagmire. It's it's very difficult to elucidate. The thing is that there is pretty much a, f- a migrating capital in Latvia, and nobody really knows where it's from. Latvia is a eurozone member state now, and uh, I think that has worsened the situation. Eurozone meaning they use the EU currency. They use the EU currency, indeed, and no longer the LAT. The LAT was a very small local denomination, probably not of much interest to international investors. But now you everything is carried out in euros. So this, uh, the head of the Latvian National Bank has been accused by a whatever Latvian Russian financier that he had asked for more and more money, but the, the, the amount quoted in the local press was a ridiculous 100,000 euros, which is 120,000 or less dollars, $120,000 in such a, uh, such a class if money dealing and wheeling is ridiculous amount. So that wasn't very credible. Um, the American uh, investigations have brought about the, uh, what you quoted, uh, the, the, the fact uh, the European Central Bank is very tight-lipped about it. Uh, we don't, uh, we don't hear anything practically. The thing is, is it possible that a small economy like a Latvian and with comparatively large banking sector is or has been instrumentalized by owners of migrating uh, enormous fortunes in much the same way that perhaps Cyprus? Probably has done. Yes, we know from Cyprus the banking issue when the Cy- when the, the banks in Cyprus were closed to the people living there, the Dublin and the um, uh, the Moscow office were open, but you won't find them in the street. They are on the twentieth floor of, of a high rise building in Moscow. Uh, so uh, that was a thing for Cyprus, and you see this in Malta. It's the very same. Uh, and Latvia now probably with a strong inclination towards the Euro- European continental east. Well, the, the what the Americans accused this bank of was the, the infringement of, of sanctions enforced. And of course, uh, I don't know the the details about it, but in the end, this bank's probably down and out. And uh, the the central bank has the controlling function. So this is just essentially a big embarrassment for Latvia, but there's no threat 
economic threats for Europe. No, but wider. It's, it's it, just that it shows that given the diversity of the countries within the EU, their histories in Latvia's case, its proximity to Russia, uh, ensuring the same banking standards throughout every member of the Eurozone is practically impossible and very shrewd people use the various systems to their advantage. Well, I would really see some kind of strategic approach here. We've talked about this in a previous discussion uh, about Hungarian ties to Russia or China or Greek ties to China or Russia, where influence is bought alongside with investment, political influence. And that is now indeed a thing we, we see in various places in the EU, because the individual banking system is highly attractive. Latvia has a strong currency. The euro is a strong currency. Uh, Latvia enjoys it. And uh, Latvia is very attractive, Riga in particular, very attractive for foreign investment. Uh, Latvia is not uh, economically as feeble as Hungary or as Greece. Uh, on the contrary, it's probably not as uh, active as Estonia, but it's it's quite an active small country. And um, my understanding is that political scene in, in, in Latvia is known very well to outside investors. And given the high the uh, high quantity of probably Ukrainian or Russian knowledge and investment within the state proper, uh, the idea of using the Latvian euro-based banking system is not very far-fetched. <laughs> uh, it won't shatter the euro, but it shows that there are other areas where you may one day find Panama Papers. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it shows, as we were talking about China's growing influence, there are ways of influencing Eurozone and EU countries indirectly, and one way is through the banking system. Uh, I think it's, a, strategically speaking, this is a far more efficient way than having military maneuvers on the border, uh, because this mostly happens and the twilight of uh, the absence of public knowledge or understanding. I think this is quite quite clearly the case. New global conflicts may play out less and less uh, where there is visible military presence, but more and more so in the uh, uncharted waters of the the internet, the online banking, and the financing the the finance financiers world. Speaking of the financier's world, let's move to the third and final topic today, which is Greece. Of course, we've been talking about the bubbling cauldron in the EU, but maybe we have some good news, because this week there seems to be some positive news about the state of the Greek economy as Greece approaches the end of its financial support from the EU, the IMF, and the World Bank on August 20th. Just to refresh our memories, Greece has received 275 billion euros in financial support from international creditors over the past eight years. Yesterday on Friday, June 22nd in Brussels, the Eurozone nations agreed to a plan to end the eight-year bailout. As part of the deal, Greece is able to delay payment on some loans for a further 10 years. And Greece also received 15 billion additional euros. Mm -hmm. This to me sounds like a new bailout, but it has not been described this way in the international press. Instead, finance ministers from France and Germany and the European Central Bank 
seem to be unified in presenting a sunny picture about the sacrifices Greece has made to return to a stable financial situation. Here are some stats that I read on the Greek economy. The Greek economy has grown 1.9% in 2018. Mm -hmm. Unemployment is at 20%, so it's holding steady, improving slightly. The big problem here, though, is youth unemployment, which is still at a staggering 43%. 43% is a lot. Lastly, public sector expenditures have been cut by 26%, which potentially means that some of the corruption in the civil service system has been addressed. So, Dr. Donner, is this Greek deal another bailout, and will it work? Uh, well, it's the last, it's the dessert of the third bailout, uh, and the last, the last installment uh, given to Greece. And now the hope is there, as you've described correctly, that Greek, Greece will henceforth be able to refinance herself at the capital markets. The Greek government has, we should just well recap a bit the idea they started as the ultra left-wing anti-european pro-solidarity protest movement but they have abandoned all this and in the end continued to do what the previous government before them had been doing namely sluggishly and slowly trying to to implement sanctions and conditions imposed on them are bestowed on them by their by their creditors. The Tsipras government will face elections next year, and this is probably at the um, at the centre of this all uh, of the, the whole activity. The European Union uh, he, it doesn't look that that he's been he'll be re-elected. So I think the polls have it that he'll he'll be defeated massively. Nobody knows who will come after him. Because it's very un, it's very um, uncertain. On making a prediction as to Greek parties today is probably quite a tricky affair. The thing is, will they be able to uh, raise in enough uh, money at the capital markets? I have my doubts. Uh, why should one invest in Greek bonds? There is a little uh, uh, an emergency exit. As you know, there is talk about the European Central Bank as a whole stopping the monthly purchase of now 30 billion euros in public and private guilds and, and bonds. Is uh, that for every European country, yeah. not just Greece, That's just, no, just they, they have until now not been allowed to buy Greek bonds. Okay. Uh, the European Parliament has been well in favour of Draghi buying Greek bonds as well, or taking Greek bonds as a security. That we have to use their official language for this, because what they do and what they pretend to, to be doing is to, something totally different. This will probably will one one way out uh, that by reducing further reducing the the monthly amount of uh, purchase of, of gilts and, and treasuries by the uh, the European Central Bank. Uh, a part might then be directed towards Greece. That would probably help help the Greek economy a bit. I doubt that they will will be able to rely exclusively on the on the market because that will drive their interest rates in, quite high, and they won't won't be able to cope with it. The government, as such, is probably 
not much less corrupt than the previous ones. Though, again, one has to face the fact that millions of Greeks have suffered and are suffering enormously. A new trend in Greece is that of having sold everything of value and having consumed their nest eggs, poor people now have to sell their apartment and buyers from Eastern Europe come and buy them on auctions and then they th- throw the, the, the people out and you can buy an apartment, an apartment, a Greek apartment for a song and a dance now. That is very brutal. I mean, for the Greek people, the own apartment was something very important. There, there is a, very, a great shortage of properties for rent. So people used to live in their own thing, even if it was in fact owned by the banks. And now these people have no money anymore and they cannot live within. So it's put in auction and that's it. Life in Greece today for many, not for everyone, for quite a large percentage of the population is a disaster. I was quite struck by that number of the high unemployment in, in Greece, especially for the youth at 43%. It's it's a sad thing for almost a whole generation. And I noticed also, I can't remember the number, youth unemployment in Italy was quite high. And you can see, I met some Italians the other week, uh, young younger Italians, and they were really not positive about the future. And that no. doesn't bode well for the European unit, Union as a whole. It doesn't bode well for European unity. It doesn't bode well for a more humane refugee and migration policy. It doesn't bode well for the welfare Mm-mm. systems. And it is quite uh, a sad thing. And maybe one day we, we should do uh, a talk or at least a session on youth unemployment and, mm-hmm. and how important it is to change that. But I think we need, do need to end it for today. So thank you again, Dr. Donner. Thank you very much. We will be taking a short summer break, but Dr. Donner will be back in a couple of months. If you enjoy The Transatlanticist, please support the show by subscribing for free with iTunes, TuneIn, or your podcast provider. Also, please be so kind as to give us a five-star rating and review. Your reviews really do help us keep the show going. So please do give us that five-star rating and review. If you would like to provide comments, suggest topics, or recommend guests, I'd love to hear from you. Please send me an email at asola at americacentrum.de. That's all, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.